It's good to be here this morning with you, and it's an honor to be your speaker. And I hope that what we have to consider for a little while in our study this morning will be helpful to you in understanding just a little more of one of the minor prophets of God that spoke so long ago, and that is the prophet Joel. We're going to discuss Joel beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1, though we will not go verse by verse through the text as a chapter study. We'll try to narrate the best way that we know how to get through some of the things that are given there and outlined there and some lessons that we can learn also going all the way through to chapter 2 and verse 27, where this entire text could be considered the day of the Lord. As a text, though, this morning, I've chosen Joel, the second chapter, and we'll read the first 11 verses to suffice for our introductory remarks this morning. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall it be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness, they shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall, they shall climb upon the houses, they shall enter into the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Correctly read reads the first 11 verses of Joel chapter 2. But what was he talking about? And what lessons can we glean from these words? We'll discuss that in great detail in just a few moments. But before we do, we have a wonderful privilege, and we've chosen this time in our worship to go before the God of heaven in prayer. He hears us today, and we would ask all that would to humble yourself in a manner that you see fit while our brother directs our minds at this time. Like many other of the prophets of God, we know very little. In fact, about the man that wrote this book that's before us today, we know nothing except that he was, as verse 1 of chapter 1 would indicate, the son of Pethuel. His name in Hebrew, Yoel, is signifying Jehovah is God. 
Also, the date of this book is as conjectural as the life of this man himself, and it's variously placed as early as 900 B.C. and as late as 400 B.C. In study of this, though, I believe that the earlier date is probably when it was written, making it second in succession to the Minor Prophets, where Obadiah, that we've already discussed and, and uh, taught on, was first. And for our study, we will place this writing in about the year 830 B.C. The point before us today, though, is this, that though the date of its composition may be uncertain and beyond our ability to determine for sure, the message of the book is immortal and timeless, and it can teach you and I today as it did when it was spoken so long ago. There are but two main divisions in the book of Joel. It's found there in Joel, about three chapters, and we find that 37 verses where the prophet Joel is doing the speaking. And when he does, he describes most graphically, in the first instance, a plague of locusts accompanied by drought and closing with the earnest exhortation to repentance. Finally, though, the latter 36 verses of the book of Joel is where God speaks. And when he does, he announces in solemn language the final doom of Israel's foes and closes with the description of the glorious victory of the people of God. And so to sum it up today, we find that the first half of the book begins in gloom and closes in light, and the second one begins in judgment and ends in victory. Some, though, have broken down the book into three sections. In uh, the first section would be how the locust plague and drought called the people to repentance. The second section, which would cover chapter 2 and verse 28 down to ch uh, chapter 3 and verse 16, where we find that the day of the Lord heralded by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly and finally, going all the way down and covering the period from that point forward to the last verse of the book of Joel, the glorious future of Judah and Jerusalem, and what that represents to us today. Mr. Robinson, in his book on the Twelve Minor Prophets, said this, There is but one great thought which constitutes the prophet's entire message, and therefore one might rightfully label it the parable of locusts and what that teaches us today. There are three basic interpretations about these locusts. For example, what was Joel referring to? Were these literal locusts? And when he describes the destruction, was that a picture or a type of something else? Or was he speaking of something that was literal, historical, and actual? Well, let me just tell you, the three basic interpretations of the locusts are these. Number one, there is the allegorical, and that's just a fancy word for figurative, like this was an allegory of something else. An allegorical interpretation of this would interpret the locust as a symbol of the hostile armies of world powers that are to attack Israel in successive invasions. The second interpretation is the apocalyptic one, and that theory is that Joel uses the locust as an apocalyptic device to give us an accurate description of the last days when hosts of unearthly warriors shall come in battle array as evidenced in Revelation 9, and thirdly, saying all that, we'll focus on the one that I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt is the proper interpretation that is the actual or historical interpretation. And in so doing, we understand that Joel pictures locusts that were real. 
He sees them swarming upon the people of God, and he sees them swarming upon their vegetation and devouring it in the land. So without a doubt, I believe and will teach it as such that it was actual, literal, and historical. And now we begin. As we begin chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll just narrate some of these things to you, the book begins with the word of the Lord coming to Joel. And said, hear you elders and all the inhabitants of the land. He's going to picture something like this. He said, there's nothing in your lifetime that has ever been like what we are going to describe in the next few verses of scripture. There's nothing in your lifetime that you have ever seen that's as devastating as what he is going to picture and what's happening to the people of God and their land. He says it's not only something that's not happened in your lifetime, but it's so devastating it has not even happened in the lifetime of your ancestors, your fathers, and so on. It's going to be such a horrible thing that you're going to pass down all the evidences of things that have happened to your children. And those children, it's going to be so devastating, they'll tell their children and their children yet another generation besides. We'll talk about this horrible thing, this scourge of locusts. Notice the description that Joel uses, and I'm going to borrow another translation in verse 4 and uh, discuss with you from the New King James Version. I think it might be, you may know what a palmer worm and a canker worm is. Maybe you do, and I just don't, but I didn't. So I looked up another translation, and this makes a little more sense to me in verse 4. This is what it says. What the chewing locust have left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. But what's he talking about? You know, when we discuss the stages of development of a locust, now we can understand. And here they are. A crawling locust, they were the hatchlings. And the hatchlings consumed the tender ground vegetation. Then they would grow, and then you would have the next stage, which was the consuming locust. And the consuming locusts were the hoppers. And they completed the tender vegetation or the destruction of those things. Thirdly, there's the chewing locust. And they were the winged hoppers, and they attacked the branches. And finally, the full-grown locust, they were the swarming locust, they were the mature ones, and they stripped even the bark of the trees and made them white. And Joel begins by naming the, the luxuries of life, and then he proceeds to the essentials of life, that all is going to be affected. He says the words like this. He says, to all you drunkards, he says, wake out of your stupor because the source of your drink has now been cut off. I think it's rather interesting what Joel does here. He's picturing, first of all, the luxuries. You know, there are luxuries in our life that we enjoy. And we might lose luxuries in our life and we may miss them. We may really want them. We may crave them. We may even long for them and be very sorrowful when we don't have them any longer. But it's even worse when the essentials or the necessities that we have in this life are taken away. And Joel is picturing something very, very significant that we need not to hurry past. He's picturing both are destroyed. The luxuries are destroyed and the essentials are also destroyed. 
Now let's go back to the phrase as he's speaking to the drunkards. You know, the, the Bible speaks of new wine. And there is new wine and there is sweet wine. Interestingly, there's a difference. The new wine, and we'll just go forward in time. If this was written in about 830 B.C., let's go forward in time to A.D. 33. And this is the last time we'll reference the book of Acts until next time when we talk about this prophet of Pentecost. But let me just say this. You remember when the Holy Spirit had came to the apostles and they were preaching what Jesus said they would preach where they would preach repentance and remission of sins. They were in Jerusalem and they were preaching that very first gospel sermon. You remember what they said when they were speaking and those that were listening were hearing in their own native tongue or language. Somebody said these men are full of new wine. But the response was these men are not drunken as you suppose for it is but the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning and how absurd it is to say that these men are drunk by partaking of new Wine, And finally, what was said is this. Not only are they not drunken, as you suppose, not only is it absurd to, to assume so at 9 a.m., but what they're speaking is the words of the prophet Joel. <laughs> now we'll go back in time now to where we are. There's something else that was cut off too, and that is the sweet wine. The sweet wine is the tender juice of the grape. That's an essential. That is something that is necessary. That is something that we all enjoy. And so after Joel passes from the plight of the wine drinkers, he now calls upon the priest to mourn and lament because the offerings of worship were cut off. You know, there's a great need here and there's a great picture of how they needed to be ever so sorrowful and the priest should lead the charge in being remorseful and mourning and lamenting and repentance, by the way, is going to be described very, very specifically and very graphically on how they must do it. But you know what? Not only is he saying that the good things that you enjoy in this life to the flesh not only the essentials, but there's something even greater. You need to uh, mourn. All the people needs to be sorrowful because now even the items that you can take and worship to God have been destroyed and there's nothing to bring before him. He tells them to grieve like a virgin in sackcloth who has lost her husband in battle that she was betrothed to from her youth. You know, I can't really picture this. We don't have betrothals and so on today but picture this you have a young lady and there's a young man and she's been betrothed to that man all the way back in time since she was a little tiny little girl and so that would be the man that she would spend the rest of her life with Joel is picturing it like this can you imagine how it would be if that young man that you've been betrothed to, that husband of yours, goes out into battle and loses his life. Can you imagine the mourning of that young lady? Oh, how awful that would be. You know, I can't fathom that. We have some that do understand that, what it's like to lose your spouse when you're young. How awful that is. We can't picture anything that is worse than that. You know, when we look at that, we look at our families, I think that'd be the worst thing. The worst thought of all in thinking about something like that is that you would be leaving them and they would be alone. 
They'd be alone in this world without you and how awful that would be. Oh, that's the picture Joel is using here. He said, you repent in sackcloth. You mourn in sackcloth. You mourn in such a way that you are so sorrowful and you do it like a young lady that lost her betrothed husband in battle and now she's all alone. The grief of the people is great because the invaders affect their very worship, especially the great anguish of the priests. The fields are now left bare. There is no grain. Vineyards are stripped and therefore there's no new wine. The olive trees are barked and therefore there's no olive oil, which is essential as food for all. The husbandmen along with the vine dressers are called upon to join the priest in mourning. For all share alike in this desolation. And with grain and all manner of fruit that's cut off, the joy of fullness has now vanished, and hopelessness overwhelms all strata of society. But you know, this graphic, very graphic description of the invasion of these locusts and the devastation of their land is followed by a call to repentance and fasting before the Lord. And rightfully so, who was to lead the charge? Who was to set this example on true repentance and so on and mourning? It was the priests. It was the ministers of God, the servers of God. And they were to gird themselves, get this now, they were to gird themselves with sackcloth and lie all night before the altar. They were to lament and mourn the nation's condition. Notice this though. If you didn't know what sackcloth is, sackcloth was a coarse, hairy material, very uncomfortable to the skin, but it was, it was worn next to the skin as symbolic of the misery of the soul of an individual. So when they were in misery, they would wrap themselves in sackcloth. And that's what he's saying. He says, you people of God, you servers of God, you priests now, you ministers of God, you do it first, and you wrap yourself in sackcloth and lay before the altar all night, and you mourn because of how the people of God have been. Oh, this expression of humility before God was accompanied also with a solemn fast. They were to call a sacred assembly. They were to gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord their God. And they were to cry out unto the Lord. You know, this awful calamity had come upon the people as a warning of the day of the Lord that was to come. And we need to be careful about this phrase, the day of the Lord. It is true that the day of the Lord signifies or represents things in the future sometimes. But in other times, it represents things that happened in their very lifetimes. And others would come in a near future. But the day of the Lord here is not picturing the judgment day. This is not a picture of something that was to come at the end of time that has never come our way, which you and I are waiting that day. And incidentally, we're going to find out that because of their repenting that the Lord lamented and the day of the Lord passed them by. In other words, the day of the Lord means the judgment of the Lord. And when the judgment of the Lord was passed by these individuals, they were able to have that wonderful relationship with the great God of heaven once again. But let me just say this, though. The day of the Lord, the judgment day, is not going to pass. 
That is going to be a day that's going to be there, and you and I can do nothing to, to have God remove the day of the Lord, the judgment day. All we can do is be prepared, but that day is coming. And Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, is going to reward those that have done that which we have been told to do, and those that have lived contrary to the word of God, those folks that were not Christians and living in accordance with the word of God, they'll be lost, and that will be the judgment of God upon them. But in this case, this day is a day of judgment upon the people of God. And as bad as this calamity is that he's already described in chapter 1, it would only represent partial destruction compared to what was coming. And the prophet cries out fervently to God, and here are his words, and I'll read them exactly. He says, O Lord, to thee will I cry out, for the fire hath devoured the pastures, and the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beast of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And notice this now as we begin chapter 2. We find that the first warning and summons to look to God is followed by a more urgent warning and call to repentance because the day of the Lord is at hand. And they were to blow the trumpets. You know, interestingly about blowing the trumpets, blowing of the trumpet was used in Israel to call the people to the door of the tent of meeting. It was used to start them on their journey. It was used to sound an alarm in their way. And it was used to call them to a holy convocation at the time of their festivals in Numbers chapter 10 and verses 1 through 10. But here, the trumpet is used to sound an alarm. And the sounding of the alarm from Zion, or by the way, God's holy mountain, is what it says here in the King James Version. God's holy mountain and Zion is the same thing. More on that in just a moment. But the sounding of the trumpet was one of an alarm to call the people of God to Zion. And it would be a place where they would go and go toward the fortress of the Lord. Because that's the only place that safety is found. Remember a couple of months ago, remember the prophet Obadiah. You know, I called that the uh, judgment of Edom, that little sermon. Obadiah uh, had the shortest of all the minor prophets in his writings. It was one chapter long. And he spoke of the destruction of the Edomites, those people of Edom. And the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And you remember, as we discussed, that Esau and his brother Jacob were at odds one with the other, even in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. They were at odds one with the other. We also know of a day when Esau came and saw his brother who had sawed pottage, or in other words, he boiled some stuff in a pot. And here he comes and he says, give me some of that red pottage, that same red pottage. I'm dying here. And we, under, we know what happened. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a a little bit of that pottage. But he didn't care because he thought he was going to die anyway, but he didn't. Animosity continued in their life. It was the day that Jacob stole the blessing that was Esau's blessing. Oh, they were at odds with one another. And one day down the stream of time after that, they patched and mended their fences. 
but their descendants did not. And the book of Obadiah is speaking of the judgment that's to come upon those of Edom. That it's a horrible thing when your brother is in animosity in his life and yet you stand on the other side. That's what Obadiah said. You stood on the other side. In the Exodus, they refused passage of their brother Israel. And they rejoiced in the calamity of the other. Oh, there was going to be judgment to come. Some have called, by the way, the book of Obadiah as the tale of two mounts. And here's really the point. I said all that to say this. Mount Seir or Mount Esau was where destruction was going to come. And the day of the Lord, and that's the first one that I understand, unless I'm incorrect on that. Obadiah was the first prophet to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was to come on those Edomites or descendants of Esau. And where were those that were going to be saved be? They were going to be at Mount Zion. So one would have to leave Mount Seir or Mount Esau to get to Mount Zion. Because in Mount Zion, that's the only place that man was safe. That's exactly what's pictured here. You know, we, we know of Zion today is the church. That's the place where people find rest away from the judgment of God. That's the only place where safety is found, is in Zion. And so the trumpet was to be sounded in Zion and to draw the people of God to that place. The day of the Lord is now described in vivid and sober, somber terms. It's a day of darkness and it's a day of gloominess. It's a day of clouds and thick darkness, it says. And then in a vivid language, he describes the army of locusts. Now listen to this. They look like the horse with elongated heads and their forward march. The noise of their coming, moving, and gnawing is described as the rumbling of chariots. Have you ever seen a movie where you have chariots? We don't know about chariots very much today unless you have one. I don't know that you do, or I certainly don't. But if you've ever seen a movie when they were an army was coming into battle and the sound of the chariots with those hard wheels against that hard ground and beating against the rocks, when there was a whole slew of them as they were moving along, you can hear the sound of the chariots from afar off. That's what they heard. That's the sound of the northern army, which is the locusts. Notice some more about that. You know, uh, the sinking hearts that they must have felt. The anguished expressions and the blood-drained faces express something of the terror that took hold of the people as they stood helplessly as they would behold the ruin of their land. But nothing would deter the onward march of the invaders. As an army, they march on. They climb the walls, they invade the courts, and they invade the houses of the people. Notice, they break not their ranks. They do not interfere with each other. Each would fulfill its mission. And the prophet Joel sees this horde of locusts as the army of God. Directed by him, carrying out his divine judgment, and as Joel said, and who can abide it? It's further a picture of God's righteous indignation also against a people who apparently had turned to ungodliness and wickedness in their life. 
Oh, surely we can learn a lesson, can't we? Can't we today? We're talking about something that was written in 830 B.C. But can't you and I, living in the times that we live in, can't we look at this picture that the Bible describes and learn something from that? God means business. He really does. And let me just say this too. In times past, God would interfere and destroy those that would not serve him or turn their back on him. But don't think ever that because God does not stop us in our day from doing that which he absolutely abhors, don't think that we'll avoid the day of the Lord or the judgment of God. God means business. But there's some wonderful things too that we're going to learn in just a moment. Stay with me. It's a picture of God's righteous indignation here against the people who turn to ungodliness and wickedness. And in this more vivid description of judgment, it's followed by a more urgent call to repent. This is beautiful to me. You know, we've just painted a very bleak picture, haven't we? We've pictured some pretty negative things. We have pictured utter and total destruction. We have pictured the necessities are taken away and the luxuries and the pleasures are taken away. We have pictured something now that is so horrible that the people of God can no longer worship because there's nothing to bring to the Lord. And in the picture that Joel describes of this destruction, you know what's great about this? It's not too late. That is a picture of God, ladies and gentlemen, for all time. It is not too late. I don't know about you, but I can't fathom living my life without an opportunity to start over when I make a mistake. What if it was that if you made a mistake and you all make them and so do I, make them all the time. What if, if it was that one mistake, it was too late? But it's not like that. If we'll repent, if we'll mourn, if we'll cast aside those things that were enticements to make us sin, it is never too late. It will only be too late when God decides to bring an end to this old world. Or it's too late when you draw your very last breath. Now it's too late. But as long as this earth is still standing, as long as the great God of heaven is in his heaven... And Jesus is reigning over his kingdom of the church. And you still have life and breath in you. It is never too late to change. That's great. If the people in this text will turn to God with a heart of genuine penitence. If they would come with unfeigned fasting and with weeping and mourning. And notice, if they would rend the heart and not the garments, God would be merciful. Interesting about this. You know, we've talked about Jesus spoke of these things. How many times have we spoke of the heart? How you have to make changes in your life first in the heart. And when your heart changes, then everything else changes in succession. First your heart, then your actions or your way of life, and then your relationship with God. Joel tells him, rend the heart. Don't just rip the clothes as an outward sign of repentance. You rend the heart. You change your heart. And when you do that, it's not too late. 
God has always demanded a true and, uh, and contrite heart. He always demands that when we repent, we must rend the heart. Hear the words of the psalmist David, please, in Psalms 51 and 17. The sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Well, this change of heart should be demonstrated now, though, by an assembly of the people and a fervent call upon God. And once again, they were to blow the trumpet, not like they blew it in chapter 2 and verse 1, which was, a, which was something else as a, uh, an alarm, but this was different. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, and all the solemn assembly. Notice, they were to assemble with the people. Listen, we have come together today as the people of God, as Christians, in an undivided assembly. We know that that's right, according to New Testament teaching. I just want you to see the picture of what Joel says, passed on from the word of the Lord, of how they were to assemble. When they would repent and rend the heart, now it was time to come into a solemn assembly and to do so and worship God and fall down before him. And notice, they were demonstrating how their repentant heart had been changed. What were they to do now? Okay, now that you've repented, now that you've changed, call a solemn assembly, blow the trumpet from Zion, and you bring all the people to that one assembly in that one place. I just think it's rather interesting, and I'll just pass this on to you. Let's notice who all was going to be in that one undivided assembly. It would be the old men, it would be the young children, and even the babes at the breast. That looks like to me that's old folks, that's young folks, and that's babies too. And they were to come together in that undivided assembly. Thought that was interesting. I'm not saying that's binding today. I'm just saying that's a picture of what they were told to do to come into the solemn assembly. And when they would, they'd be led by the priests. They would be led by the ministers of God. And they would say, spare your people, O Lord, and get this, and give not thy heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Let me just explain this phrase really quickly uh, before we move on. In other words, what they were going to say when they would come together in this solemn assembly, they would say the words that I just read. In other words, unless the people would repent at the present locust judgment, there would follow a more serious judgment which would be invasion by heathen nations, and the heathen nations would then rule over the people of God. So they were to cry this out to God and say, listen, and, and cry out to God because if they didn't repent and they would continue in that because of the destruction that God cast down on them, heathen nations are going to come against them. Heathen nations are now going to rule and reign over the people of God. And look at what they're going to say. They're going to say, where's their God now? Oh, where is thy God? We, as a heathen nation, are stronger than their God. How horrible that would be. And so, another thing, too, is they would say that uh, God is unable to help his own people. That's what they were to say when they came together in that solemn assembly. It is implied that the people responded to God in a favorable fashion, calling them to repentance and calling upon him. And God had pity. Get this now. 
God had pity and divine compassion upon his people. This would be demonstrated in two ways. First of all, God would send food that they so sorely needed, and once more they would have that hunger satisfied. And secondly, he would remove the reproach that's brought on them among the nations by driving out the locusts from their midst. But here he speaks of the locusts as the northern army, that they would be driven out into barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea, and his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise. God is going to destroy the northern army, which are these locusts that we've already discussed. Homer Haley wrote this. I thought this was interesting. I'll pass it along. But in his book on the 12 minor prophets, he wrote this. The prophet here pictures complete and total destruction of the invaders. The putrefying insects in such immense quantities would cause a terrible stench to fill the air. Oh, truly, judgment brings its dire consequences and leaves its reminders. Thought that was interesting. But finally, the last section now, which will take us down to verse 27 of chapter 2, where we find that material fullness, gladness, rejoicing, and freedom from the locust scourge would all follow what? It would all follow after the people repented and turned back to God. And God gave them a wonderful outpouring of material plenty. And in their continued fullness and faithfulness to him, they would never be put to shame. God further lays the principle that he is in the very midst of them, that he will not leave them, and that he cares for them. He is telling them that the God who sends judgments is also the one that removes the offenders. He's also the one that bestows the blessings on his people. And you know, I'll tell you something. We've talked about this, and you all know this. You can't live your life. You can't get through things in your life without God. If a person is trying to live, you might think, well, a lot of people live without God. Yeah, they do. They live their life. But the fullness of hope of the life of a Christian you will not have. The feeling of hope that the Christian, the child of God has every single day that he lives. You can't have that without God. These people didn't have it back until they rendered the heart and came all the way back to him in the form or fashion that God had instructed. But God is ever waiting. He's ever caring. He will not leave his people. You know what else we learn by this? We learn that God sometimes will change his mind. That he will alter his judgments if we repent. Remember that little Hebrew preacher? He went to the people of Nineveh and he walked the streets and preached that little tiny sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. What happened? Did they get destroyed? No, they repented and God spared them. Oh, God is merciful. If... We repent. God is merciful and kind and nurturing and caring after we serve him as we should. You know, there's one more thing about this. You remember when we talked about 
we preached on Samson. You remember that little phrase, and he, King James Version says, and he wist not, or basically, he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. Remember what happened? Finally, Delilah got to him. And finally, as she said, as they called to the lords of the Philistines, come now, come immediately, bring me the money, because he's now told me his whole heart. Told him about his hair. The Bible says she enticed him to sleep on her knees. She called a man in with a razor and shaved off the seven locks of his head. And when he did, and when that man did that, she finally said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson, like she had done on other times. He rose up and he said this, I will shake myself and it will be as it was all the other times before. But he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. When does the Lord depart? He only departs when we depart. When we leave him, he leaves us. But if you will never leave him, it doesn't matter what you will go through, whatever calamity in your life, the great God of heaven is there for you as your refuge if you don't leave him. Oh, this is a universal picture of God. In conclusion, I'm through. Let me just tell you a couple things in conclusion that we learned from this section of the prophet Joel. Number one, we learned that calamities cause us to draw nigh to God, and that's true. Now, it doesn't matter where the calamity comes from, where the hard time comes from, it causes man to come to God. Somebody said not too long ago about, about this idea from the pulpit, I don't remember who it was, but said something along the lines of sometimes when things are going great, we forget about God. We don't think about God. Things are just going along too well. But it's times like these when you're desperate that you turn to God. Calamities in life, whoever uh, brought them on us, I don't know, cause us to turn toward God. Number two, number two, we learn from what we've studied today the nature of true repentance it must be with the whole heart. It must be inward and not just outward. Thirdly, we learn the nature of God. Oh, how wonderful that is as the picture of God is described to us. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And he is of great kindness. Number four, we learn that God relents from doing harm when we repent, as we've just noticed. And finally, we learn that God means business. He's going to have it his way, folks. And if we want the blessings of God, we must turn to him and serve him as he is outlined in his word. Next time, in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse 28 of chapter 2. We're going to talk about why he's called the prophet of Pentecost. We'll learn about when God's spirit would be poured out among all flesh. We'll find also that God's judging the nations is described also. What did, what did he mean by that? And finally, this is the best part of all, finally, how God will bless his people. That's all I have this morning. Maybe you're here under the sound of my voice and you're not a Christian. If you've never obeyed the gospel and taken the steps of obedience, the steps are very simple. The Bible says, Paul said, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. One must hear the word of God. It is the word of God that induces us or causes us to, uh, to obey him. Then we find 
that Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus also said in Luke 13 and 3, and in also verse 5, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Then Jesus says also, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you also before my Father, which is in heaven. When you take these steps, you are a fit candidate to go down into the waters of baptism and rise to walk in newness of life, contacting the blood of Jesus and having your sins washed away. That's what you have to do in order to have your sins washed away, become a Christian, and that's what you got to do to go to heaven. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.